Well, welcome. This is a read by example conversation virtually with um, uh, writer, journalist, researcher, Maren Ackerman. Um, and we've been reading the three articles that she's read, she's written uh, for the Literacy Research Association. So, um, and you had many accolades on, on, on the website, uh, but if you want to just share a few words about yourself and, and what you'd like us to know about you. Yeah, I mean, my uh, <clears throat> I have a background as a classroom teacher. Uh, I taught elementary in, at various different grade levels uh, and then uh, eventually migrated into the academic world. But uh, I've always really kept my interest in supporting uh, young children in their classroom experiences and uh, and also really thinking particularly about students who struggle more with uh, with learning to read. So uh, that's who I am. Uh, I have some background in bilingual classrooms. And um, right now I'm at the University of Calgary, uh, where I am in uh, curriculum and learning. Okay. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. We have an uh, amazing group joining us today. And I'm just going to have everyone introduce themselves. Uh, and say a little bit about themselves. And I, my name is Matt Runwick. I am an elementary school principal. Uh, I've been, I was a teacher. Um, this is my 16th year in administration, and I just have a real passion for um, equity and literacy for, for, for all kids. And, and that's my driving. That's my true north. So uh, I've also written a few books on leadership and technology integration. Uh, Deborah. Okay. So now I can just, just say, um, Martin, I, um, I have to tell you my University of Calgary story because I have a uh, my dearest, dearest friend uh, taught in the taught in Calgary, and so I would spend a lot of time there. Um, and we would always go to the university to rent our cross country ski equipment. Um, and I rentals. fell in love with climbing in their climbing room, like right next oh, door yeah. to it. Walked in to see it, and just just had to try it out. So I, have, I hope I you're have still a lot climbing. Of Calgary connections. So I absolutely love the. You always said, "Oh my God, University of Calgary, love it." Um, so let's see. Well, so I work as a literacy consultant. I was also a classroom teacher. Um, and now I'm in professional development world of uh, supporting districts and schools. Um, I um, am co-author of a book called Made for Learning with Brian Camborn. Um, so I'm just, uh, you know, just excited to be here and be part of this conversation. So yay, Thanks. Matt, organizer. Yeah. Thank you, Deborah. <laughs> Hannah? Um, so Deborah, I love that book. I just have to start by saying that. I love Made for Learning. Um, so my name is Hannah Schneewend. I also started life as a classroom teacher. So I was a classroom teacher for about 15 years. And I also am currently uh, a literacy consultant. So my writing partner is not here tonight, but her name is Jen Scoggin. And Together, Jen and I are trusting readers, and we are very interested in the role of identity in reading and how you give feedback about things like self-efficacy and motivation and engagement. So we're very interested in that kind of reader and reading part. And Hannah's, Hannah will be uh, our guest for next month. We're going to be uh, reading an excerpt from her book, Trusting Readers, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Mary. Um, my name is Mary Howard. And first, I just want to say this is like rock star country right now, seeing you here more. And it really is. Um, I just keep coming back to those. I'm a literacy consultant, was a classroom elementary teacher, special ed teacher uh, for 51 years and counting. Uh, no one seems to be able to force me to retire, but 
I did one year and three days ago um, have a an epiphany and sold everything I own, jumped on a plane, and I'm living in Honolulu, Hawaii, by myself and loving it. So now I'm loving literacy with ocean animals. <laughs> We're glad you can be here, Mary. Thrilled. Uh, and Kim. It's just a wonderful thing. I mean, I just every now and then just have that appreciation of what we can do because we have Zoom. So, okay. Just yes. Zoom. Yes. Great point. Uh, Kim. I am Kim Marshall. I'm in Boston. Uh, many of you are not uh, disclosing where you are, which is interesting. So in a virtual oh, world, it doesn't, re doesn't really matter, right? So we're in Hawaii. <laughs> we're in Calgary. We're Matt, where are you? I am in Wisconsin. I, Wisconsin and you. Deborah. I'm San Diego. San Diego and Hannah. So I'm your neighbor. I'm in Connecticut. Oh, for heaven's sake. Okay. So I started as a sixth grade teacher in Boston. I did, then became a principal in Boston, elementary principal, and became very close with Irene Fountas and uh, she and Reading Recovery. We were one of the first Boston schools to get Reading Recovery. Uh, then I got exhausted. And for the last 20 years, I've been coaching principals, uh, doing a lot of talking about teacher evaluation in particular. And uh, did the Marshall, I've done the Marshall Memo, uh, which has gotten gone from 300 subscribers in its infancy to many more around the world now. And I, my mission there is to take ideas and spread them, good ideas and spread them, and also counteract bad ideas. And of course, I've been following this whole uh, science of reading thing very closely, been looking for the right stuff. And Marin, I have to say, yours is the best stuff I've found so far. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of other articles, and, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, so thank you so much for your contribution, and I hope I've gotten it out to a lot more people. I yeah. appreciate that, and I, I actually uh, recommended to a bunch of teachers that I was talking to in Chicago uh, last week uh, that they look you up, look <laughs> up your Marshall Memo. So, yeah. Right. And I want to say thanks to Kim, too. Uh, he allowed us to use his three summary, summaries of Marin's article and embed them in the last two posts for on this newsletter. So, yeah, they're, um, it's been very helpful and makes things very accessible for busy leaders and, and teachers. So thank you, Kim. So I'll start off with just the first question. And I just want to say I, I don't you know, I agree with Kim. This is just some of the best stuff on science of reading. Um, and appreciate that you didn't approach it like science of reading is good or bad, but you more critique the, how the media is portraying it and how it might impact um, these kind of conversations in schools and, and implementation. Your your articles are there. There's no chinks in the armor, you know. It's just like it's so well cited with evidence. And um, but are you still receiving pushback on it? Um, and if so, what's what's been like a main critique or two? Um, I I have gotten some. I haven't gotten a huge amount. Um, I uh, I have heard. I've heard from. I would say that I've gotten two responses that were very negative. Uh, and one was from a teacher who was very involved in the science of reading. And we actually had a really interesting back and forth because she started out very, very angry, uh, sent me a very, very angry email. Um, and I just sort of wrote her back saying where my perspective was and that I didn't, and I didn't consider myself anti-science of reading in that sense. Like, it's not that I think all of those ideas are bad ideas, um, but that I was concerned about where the media was taking things. Uh, and so I just sort of tried to explain some of that. Um, and I, I don't think that we ended agreeing, but I think the conversation 
was one where uh, I think at the end, he actually felt heard and respected. And that was my goal, uh, because I really do think that if we are going to continue to have these kinds of conversations, the divisions are there. They're real, some of them. Some of them, I think, are manufactured. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think there are there are real differences. And part of our job as professionals is to be able to have those difficult conversations. And I'm not going to say that I'm always good at it because I'm not. <laughs> but at least that was an opportunity for me to try. Um, so I would say that I've received that kind of feedback. Um, and then, you know, there's some people who are simply not very constructive and basically just say that's a bunch of whatever. Or the media should be reporting this way because... Um, uh, science of reading is right. And so it doesn't really matter whether they're presenting it in a balanced or fact-based way. I mean, that's not exactly how they would say it, but a uh, balanced or fact-based way, because as long as the science of reading is right, it, uh, the media should just be reporting reporting it and saying that it's right. Uh, so uh, that is a little bit more of a puzzling argument to me, because I don't think that ultimately does the field of reading any good, even if you happen to be more aligned with that understanding. To me, it's very concerning when we have poor quality reporting, uh, because ultimately that means that anything that is poor quality reporting uh, can get through. And maybe it's the science of reading this time. Maybe next time it's going to be some complete fad that somebody comes up with and everybody's now we got to do this. Maybe it's in the field of math. Maybe it's in the field of science. Maybe it's, uh, you know, whatever the, the next thing is. Um, I think it's a dangerous precedent when we've got a certain group of a certain group of uh, very strong, strongly opinionated individuals who are making a very loud case that gets the ear of a certain um, constituency within uh, within the media community, uh, and then uh, that becomes uh, sort of uh, put out there as if this was unquestioned fact, and suddenly everybody is believing it, policies are being made according to it, uh, you know, teachers are being penalized if they don't go along with it. Um, and I think if we're going to be doing something like that, it shouldn't be on the basis of really poor quality reporting, because if it is, then ultimately anything can sell in that way. And that's really concerning to me because I think it's going to ultimately damage, uh, I mean, I think it already has damaged um, the credibility and usefulness of research, uh, because I don't think people um, are going to believe in high quality research if high quality research isn't really what enters the media. One one very interesting development in the last couple of weeks is that Ed Week, which which really went down the rabbit hole with with uh, with the whole science of reading thing, in the last two weeks they've come up with first of all a big push on writing. And you know, sort of encoding versus decoding, and then and then the last week, uh, big thing on knowledge, you know, background knowledge. So I think that they got the memo at, at some level. You know, New York, New York Times, no signals from there. Time Magazine, not, none there. But but I think Ed Week may have uh, indirectly, at least, uh, seen the light that it's a bigger picture than just phonics. And Marin, I think you cited a few uh, Ed Week articles, at least one that, um, and that's. It would be like a great outcome that people are able to change their minds publicly, as Kim is mentioning, and um, and that's okay. And just to kind of repeat what you're saying, I think it's really important. It's kind of hits on my like next question, but you know, you, you explain first what your perspective is, and then you get into the specific issues, 
of why you have concerns. And but your ultimate goal is to make sure everyone engaged in the conversation feels heard and respected. And you're not looking for closure or for agreement, but rather to be comfortable with disagreement and um, just keep the conversation going. It's I appreciate that. And if I can just piggyback off that, um, thinking about like, you know, you describe a conversation with with someone else, you know, from wherever, you know, I see these conversations playing out or not in schools individually, school by school by school. They're trying to engage in these kinds of conversations and and thinking about that goal. I read other like scientific articles, you know, in the New York Times, for example, and they'll interview scientists and they always seem to have like like a little bit of a seed of doubt. Like, here's what the current research says. Or they'll say, um, what we know right now, you know, they're always kind of, they're not overconfident on anything. And But I don't hear that same kind of language in the science of reading movement, largely. Um, there just, there seems to be almost some overconfidence, certainly some certainty, as you mentioned. But, you know, you mentioned like we want to get to a point of them feeling heard and respected. Any other ways we can help ourselves or others just be open-minded when we talk about these topics? I mean, I think I think it's helpful to realize that we're all on the same side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that gets lost when we uh, when we start just diving into the supposed disagreements. Um, I think that a lot of times what happens is we start out with this, uh, you know, we start out with there are these places where we differ and we do. There's some, there some of these things that really are real, but I also think we all want kids to read well. Um, and we all want kids to grow up um, feeling like they are readers. Um, I think where we balance things, where we put things, um, what things we predict, we put forward, how we put those things forward is going to look different. Um, uh, for different people, but I also, but I do think we are all on the same side in the sense that we want uh, students uh, students to read well, and we are all very concerned about that. And I think it's useful sometimes just to remind ourselves of that those people who are speaking from a very different perspective, or even in anger at us, are people who care very deeply about children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that that's you know that that's hard sometimes to remember because it is it, oftentimes I feel like there's a lot of hatred um, and a lot of assumptions uh, and I think part of the reason that happens is because so much of um, so much of the critique of science of reading. Um, or even just sort of the other side of things, whether you want to call it balanced literacy or whatever you'd like to call it, uh, when it gets presented in the media, it is presented in a way where the opponents of that are the ones who are framing what it is. So, Mm. um, So when you read about balanced literacy in the media, you're not reading about someone who is is a practitioner of balanced literacy or believes in balanced literacy and them explaining their ideas and those ideas sort of being put forward in, in a fair way. What happens is <clears throat> you have sort of the, the worst caricature of what balanced literacy is being put forward 
And that piece is not being, uh, it's not fair. Uh, And so when that kind of message is amplified and repeated and repeated and repeated, uh, what ends up happening is a lot of people get very angry, whether those are parents, whether those are teachers, um, whether those are advocates, um, they feel as though there's this cabal of people out there who are, you know, trying to prevent children from having the good education. Um, and so, <laughs> and so that is a very difficult dynamic um, to, to engage with because there's just this level of misunderstanding of what I believe, uh, of what I suspect uh, many of you believe, uh, and I'm not sure that we all would agree with everything, you know, agree on everything. And I think that's fine. Uh, so I think, so I think that for me, part of what we need to do as we're, as we're sort of thinking about this is really um, figure out how do we engage with this very angry, this very angry constituency in a way that's respectful, uh, but also in a way that doesn't enable them to shape or to to frame our position and i think that's where i am very concerned because when when a particular position um regardless of what it is is caricatured is presented by its opponents it's going to lose its nuance it's going to lose its complexity and i have real concerns about that just from the perspective of democracy uh just first from the perspective of uh, when we are engaging with people with whom we disagree, and we've seen it certainly in the U.S. play out in lots of different areas, uh, but particularly in the political arena, when people hear their opponents uh, being described in certain very caricatured ways, it becomes a very easy way to dehumanize them and to believe that they don't deserve a hearing. Um, and that's what I'm seeing in the reading field. Uh, I'm seeing people in the reading field who are saying, basically, those people don't agree with me. So those people shouldn't get, they don't deserve to be heard. Um, and some, and sometimes I think in terms of the science of reading, people that I hear speaking that way, um, uh, they maybe didn't feel heard 10 years ago. Right. They felt like they were saying all these things and nobody was listening. And so now, well, you know, you get what's coming to you because we weren't heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of that that might be going on. Um, but it's deeply concerning in terms of where we are headed as a democracy. If this is the, if this is the quality and nature of the conversations that we have when we disagree over something. Um, so, yeah. I appreciate you raising that this this one topic to a conceptual level like democracy and it helped it was not something i had thought of prior to reading your article so it helps to give a, a bigger picture and maybe better perspectives thank you so uh, i'd love to open it up to anyone here who has questions for for marin and um around these topics mary oh, it looks like you want to say something yeah one of the one of the things that um and i'm loving everything that you're saying one of the things that is and I can only speak to the United States, but that is is especially disconcerting when we think about those conversations is that policy changes are happening overnight where 
there are no conversations in school. There's almost like a carte blanche acceptance that the science of reading, that everything around it is truth. And so schools are actually, um, uh, they're actually deciding what they're mandating and what they're refuting, such as in Virginia, there was a list of things that are not research-based and choice reading was on them. So it's, um, you know, the conversations that are so important are with leadership in schools. Of course, some of those also don't have the background and research knowledge that you're talking about here. Um, And so I wonder how, how do we slow down the trajectory of people uh, ch- schools changing overnight and deciding this is bad and in some almost evil. This is evil. This is not good for children like balanced literacy and MSV, all of these things. And this is the only thing that they need. It will save them. How do we, how do we um, stop that movement from an idea into our schools changing overnight? Ah, uh, boy, I wish I had an answer for that. Uh, um, that's a hard one. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think that this is one of the dangers when, um, when what we basically have is a single narrative that is out there mm-hmm. because, um, you have the, uh, you know, politicians who think they're doing the right thing. Um, and so they, you know, they hear this, they see it in the media and, um, and so they think, yeah, this is, this is what needs to happen. I think that part of the messaging, um, that's important is to really communicate the need for flexibility. Um, so one of the things that I've talked about, uh, when I've, uh, in fact, I was just talking about it with a group of teachers in Chicago, um, is, uh, when you think about, what a research study really shows. So let's say you've got uh, approach A and approach A shows that that uh, 65% of students show great gains on using approach A. And you've got another approach, approach B, and only 40% of students show gains with approach B. So now the, <clears throat> the way that one would interpret that if one is very simple as to say, well, then everybody should be doing approach A because it's clearly better. But is it for all kids? You've still got 35% of kids in approach A who are not making that progress. If we have no flexibility, that 35% of students is going to fail. So what if we do a little bit of both? We do a little bit of A, a little bit of B, or maybe we do A for some students and B for some students. But the idea that you have to have flexibility in your repertoire and in your toolkit in order to do things well. So absolutely, you can use phonics and you can use decodables and you can use all these things. I have Mm -hmm. nothing against any of those things. I think they can be very powerful tools. I have also worked with uh, students in fifth and sixth grade who got phonics instruction and struggled with decoding. And guess what? They struggled with the same things. They struggled with, they were guessing at words in fifth grade and they had gotten phonics all the way through. This was in the open court era in Oakland. Like I saw it. So 
I think some of, there's a little bit of a fallacy that there's this idea that like, if only we were giving all the students this particular approach, there would be no struggling readers. Um, and I just don't, I, there's no evidence that I've ever seen anywhere that indicates that that's the case. So, so part of, I think, what we need to communicate is if we want to amplify or extend or make these things better quality in terms of how we are teaching phonics, I am completely on board with that. I actually do think we need to teach phonics well. We need to teach it thoughtfully. We need to do it in a differentiated way so that not all kids are getting the same phonics instruction. Um, but we also need to make sure that what we're doing is something that is flexible, that it's nimble, that different individuals can, <clears throat> different children can engage with different things. And the teachers have that flexibility so that if they know, you know what, this kid is just sitting here. This kid is not making progress with this. This kid, you know, we can do a million repetitions of this. This isn't moving them forward. Well, then maybe it's time to use a slightly different approach. But if what we're saying is you can't use any other approaches, approach B is not allowed anymore, then what you've done is you have an improved instruction. Mm. You've basically guaranteed that those kids for whom approach B might be the better way are just not going to make that progress or not going to make it nearly as quickly. Mm. Um, so why not allow teachers the flexibility in their repertoire by not creating mandates about everybody mm. has to do this or everybody has to do that? Thanks, Maren. Oh, do you think just, that has Do you think that has something to do with? I know in one of the three um, pieces that you wrote um, about, you know, one of the other narratives that's out there is that teachers don't have the knowledge base to make that kind of decision, right? So we don't trust teachers, even though we know teachers have been doing really well in some places for a really long time. Um, I do. I mean, I, I, I do think that that's part of the narrative. And I think that's part of why that narrative is dangerous. Because if, um, if you believe that teachers can't and teachers don't know and teachers won't, um, then of course you have to tell them and you have to put the tool in their hand and you have to walk them through it. And certainly, like I say, I was in Oakland during the time of the open court police. And if teachers, I mean, they had people going into the classrooms uh, and if you were not on the right page on that script, you were in trouble, right? I mean, that was the approach because no, there was zero trust in teachers, right? There was zero trust that teachers would in fact make the decisions that they, that they need to, to make. And to be fair, are there teachers who are underprepared and who don't know yet how to do things as well as they might? Yes, there are. I mean, that is certainly the case. So let's let it, let's support those teachers. Uh, let's let's build the professional capacity. Let's make sure that those teachers are in fact well prepared, um, so uh, so that they can make those kinds of decisions. But let's also not make assumptions about all teachers on the basis of some who perhaps aren't doing things so well. I mean, there are going to be teachers out there who are, who, who are going to struggle and who are not going to be as prepared as they, as they should be. Um, but to blame all teachers or to blame all teacher education programs um, is, I think, a faulty way to think about it. Byron, hmm. that's, you hit on a key concept too, I think of trust. Um, whether it's teachers not trusting themselves or they're not trusting a resource or they're not trusting their 
colleagues above and below them in terms of grade levels. And well, they're not teaching this, so I got to really focus on this maybe over uh, too much um, or just um, trusting the kids. And I think that comes into Hannah's expertise and trusting readers. I'm just curious, Hannah, if you have any thoughts or questions on the conversation. I love your book title, by the way. Wonderful. Oh, thank you yes. so much. Well, I'll tell you, actually, this conversation is very relevant because the way it came about was that my colleague Jen and I, well, I'll say this next week, but it's, you know, next time, but, you know, talk to thousands of kids and we talked to lots and lots of teachers and we were trying to figure out what's getting in the way of independent reading. And once we grouped all of their answers with post-it notes everywhere, the thread running through everyone's answers was trust. Teachers didn't trust mm -hmm. the students to read independently. So they gave them, uh, I think Grant Wiggins called it sham accountability measures. <laughs> Right. So I'm going to make you do the reading log. I'm going to make you, you know, put in five post-its, even if you haven't found five places. And so the teacher felt that, you know, to she had to make the student do something. Meanwhile, the teacher felt as if she had to be doing something because she knew her admin wasn't trusting her. Right. So it was at it's at all it's at all levels. And so, yeah, I was thinking a lot about that. And I was thinking a lot when you were talking about teachers and teacher decision-making, because I'm such a huge believer in teachers knowing their kids really well and being able to do exactly what you said, which is so-and-so needs this, so-and-so needs this. And I, you know, I know my students well, and I have a variety of methods at my disposal. Um, to teach them. But what I find interesting about the science of reading conversation is um, just what is not mentioned. So again, where is the role of engagement and motivation and attribution theory, all these other things that we know? Um, it's just not mentioned. Do I think, of course, you have to teach phonics and that we could be doing it better? Of course. So it's just curious to me that, that, you know, I'm curious about why the other part of that conversation is not part of the science of reading. You know, it's interesting because um, uh, Louisa Motes, um, who you probably are familiar with in terms of as a, someone who's a very strong advocate for the science of reading, she's on record as saying she believes that phonics instruction and the kind of uh, systematic phonics instruction that, that she's talking about is really very engaging and very motivating for students. But what's interesting is she never cites a lick of evidence, right? There's no evidence. So, so, and, and it could be, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not there, but if she care, really cares about engagement, she needs to be out there doing those studies. She needs to be out there finding those studies. Mm -hmm. um, if not, it's an empty, it's an empty concept, right? It's an empty concept. So, uh, so I do think that one of the things that I, that I think is very important to understand is that um, when we talk about sort of the big five uh, in terms of, you know, comprehension, fluency, uh, phonemic awareness, phonics, and what was the other one? I forget which ones I said. Anyway. Um, vocabulary. Vocabulary. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, when we're talking about those things, all of those things 
are absolutely important. They are really, really important. They are, but to say that those are the only things that are important um, is to really miss so much. Um, it's also missing, it's, it's missing things like engagement. It's missing things like uh, critical thinking, critical reading. Uh, it's missing things like oral language development beyond vocabulary because there's so much oral language that's out there that's not vocabulary. Um, it's missing things like uh, theory of mind. I mean, there's wonderful research out there on how literature enables children to and, and, and adults, frankly, uh, to understand better how someone else is thinking. Right. Uh, and there is research on this. This is not sort of somebody's, so, you know, somebody's just, you know, hole in the wall theory. This is out there. Um, there's research on it, but that's not the research that we're hearing about when we hear about research in, in the science of reading. And so I think part of what, what we need to be very clear about is there are certain things within the science of reading, uh, as it gets talked about, um, that um, that are research-based. But there is a wider conversation to be had around other things that are also important um, and that are also research-based. I think we also need to talk about the idea that research itself is a complex endeavor. There are so many different complexities around what research says and what research doesn't say, uh, and also what kinds of research are going to give you different kinds of information. So if you are studying smoking, you can't do it in the National Reading Panel way and because that they only take experiments and quasi-experiments. Well, experiments and quasi-experiments are never going to show a correlation between smoking and cancer because, because that's just not the right setup. So you, for that, you obviously would need a long, you know, a long-term correlational experiment. If you want to, want to understand how youth go into or, or come into smoking, why they decide to smoke, you're also, a national reading panel approach is also not going to help you, right? So there is research out there that is extremely relevant to thinking about smoking that is outside of the, re of the allowed research that are, that's in the National Reading Panel approach. Now, that's not to say that that approach is bad. I mean, that the things that are in there are bad, but it is to say it's incomplete. So part of what we need to uh, communicate in terms of the, the, the broader, these broader ideas is that, um, that there are other ways to think about research that provide ad additional information, that provide additional perspective, and that are also research-based. And, and some of the things that we don't hear as much about, we don't hear as much about them because they are complex. You can't study complex phenomena as well with experimental and quasi-experimental experiments. That doesn't mean that they aren't important, um, that, uh, but it means that <laughs> that the, it doesn't mean that that those things somehow don't matter because they're harder to study. It just means they're harder to study. So if you think about the million dollar question, like how do we put all these different things together that we know are important? Who 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 anywhere is going to design a, an experiment that put that, that can figure that out? There's no way because you've got a million different kids, a million different contexts. You've got a million, you, you've got a million different factors. You've got te different teachers with different strengths. You can't design that kind of study, and yet it's absolutely crucial. So the only kind of so the only kind of research that you can really 
do to think about that in, in, in a really thoughtful and complex way is not going to be your experimental and quasi-experimental research. It doesn't mean you can't study it because you can, but it means you have to study it using other methods. And so when you think about what is research-based, you have to think there are these things and these things are important, <clears throat> these national reading panel things, but there are other layers to the onion that we also need to think about. I have a quick question. Uh, so, Marin, in, in my reading for the Marshall Memo, I try to read everything. I'm trying to find the right stuff to help uh, by readers who are mostly principals sort of figure this one out. And this book here, uh, Shifting the Balance by Birkins and Yates, came out about a year ago. I'm interested in your take on this. Is, is this a good middle ground or, or not? What do you think of it? I, I mean, I would love to hear others. I have not myself read that that book yet. So I would love to hear from others in the room who, who perhaps have, it looks like there's some nods here. So I would love to hear from others who have heard about it. Um, my really, own, the only experience that I have with that is that I know that they were cited in the time article that I critique the authors there. So um, that's really my only, my only familiarity with them. So I don't want to say something one or the other in a way that would, um, you know, that would, would, um, yeah, so I'd love to hear from other people who've who've encountered it. I'm a principal, and we actually, I did it as a book study in our building with some of our primary teachers. And I would just say the one thing I found helpful about it was it gave us some common language around, you know, some of these terms that are commonly uh, expressed in the science of reading movement. Um, and that's, that's where I found value, and it was just understanding the vocabulary, because I've never taught kindergarten first or second grade so for me to come in and be their supervisor and and you know give feedback and look toward improvement as well as affirm what they're doing um it was just helpful for me so hmm. anyone else read it yeah so i have read it and i'll say so in connecticut as with massachusetts we have a you know a right to read science of reading bill and I found shifting the balance very useful to read with schools. It is very, very user friendly. And so it's very, it's set up extremely clearly in a kind of not this, but that way. Um, and so I think it's very helpful. And also their whole tone, which is sort of what you're talking about is very much, we live in the world of and, you know, we need, this and we need that. We need this and we need that. So I do think it is uh, very helpful. And in terms of if you're if you are thinking about principles as people to read it, I think it's very helpful because um, it's specific enough. So you could help teachers say, "Oh, we could be doing this," but also uh, general enough so that you don't have to have been the kindergarten teacher for ten years to be able to uh, use it. So that's just my take. Hmm. Anyone else uh, encountered it? I would just say it's a good. It was. It's a good start. I would hmm. say as, as a book, but I think there's a whole lot more to unpack on this whole topic, and which I appreciate, like the Marshall Memo and and everyone else's resources here that you've put out to continue to be become more knowledgeable. And and I have, I love to keep talking about this. This is I can't believe forty minutes have gone by, but. Um, you know, I think that's where I just see is employing these resources and using them in schools. It really is always dependent on the knowledge of the teacher. Um, you know, they can read it in different ways. You can use it in different ways. But until they have that knowledge base, 
the principal and the teachers, um, we're going to be dependent on whatever's coming down from states or districts. And so, so this is why we do what we do here is to, to uh, create some collective knowledge and, and share it out. But any parting thoughts here before we close out? And this has been a great discussion. I, I, Matt, want to... I mention one thing. There is a brand new book coming out um, in the next month or so by Patricia Paugh, P-A-U-G-H, and Deborah McPhee. It's called More Than a Single Story, Learning to be Literate. And mm. I'm really excited about this book. In fact, we're going to spotlight it on Good to Great. So um, More Than a Single Story, Learning to be Literate. Um, by Patricia Pa and Deborah McPhee. And that should be out in the next month or so. I, I have to say, Aaron, I think you've picked a very good strategy in not taking on Emily Hanford directly because Emily Hanford is very, very good at what she does. Uh, and, you know, you, you're not going to win, you know, a knife fight with Emily Hanford. Uh, but to go to really to go to the coverage of it and also your tone is is so respectful and so measured and thoughtful. I think I think uh, this is why I really glommed onto it for the Marshall Memo. So I really thank you for your very, very important contribution to this, unfortunately, the fourth phonics war. I mean, I go back to the 1950s, you know, why Johnny can't read. I mean, we've done this war four times. And, and you know, and, and this is sort of the nastiest in a way. But I think I think we're going to find a middle ground here. And by the way, all that legislation, everything, probably many of those teachers are going to continue to do the right thing in their classrooms, guided by smart principals and so forth. Thank you, Kim. And Danny did post a question here too. Um, he's just looking for more, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, but just it's in the chat, but more. So if you as here are being a part of this conversation and um, we want to promote all voices and, and appreciate the nuances and a truly research-based view of learning to read and teaching reading, where can we find that? Um, and that's a great question. I would say anyone here, uh, I mean it, anyone in this group, I mean, check out their resources. Um, it's, it, they're all terrific and uh, just finding diverse perspectives. Um, but it, would anyone want to add to what Danny's asking here? Um, just trying to find more information, other favorite resources you might have, like um, Kim mentioned. D Danny, where are you and what's your role? Well, thanks, Kim. Danny? And he's having some connection issues. So I just oh. said to throw some info in the chat, but. Uh... I mean, I, th I think that that at, <clears throat> that one thing that I'm working towards is really thinking about uh, how do we read research and making research more directly accessible to teachers in that way? Because I do think a lot of these kinds of questions, uh, when you hear the banner of this is research, you're like, oh, well, then that must be true. Uh, and I think one of the one of the tasks that I have for myself in the next couple of months is to think through, well, what are some of those challenges that we encounter um, or what are some of the complexities that we encounter in terms of research? And how can we how can we read that research in a way that is informed and critical um, so that we're not just assuming, oh, well, it says that, you know, we, was, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that says, well, we now know how children read because of these brain research things. Well, you look at what br the brain research actually shows, you know, one of the, you know, big studies that, that just came out of Stanford is a study of 16 adult normal readers reading a pseudo language, you know, at le le learning a pseudo language, and they compared 
learning it through sort of a phonic approach versus learning whole words. And they decided it based on where the, the brain was lighting up that um, learning, you know, learning to read, you know, through the phonic approach was superior. But and and so going from that to now we know how to teach all <laughs> kindergartners in everywhere how to how to learn to read is just absurd. It doesn't mean that the study itself is a bad study. It doesn't mean that the study shouldn't inform or help us think about reading in some way. But to go from basic level research in that 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 happens in that sphere to policy recommendations is is simply absurd. And so those are the kinds of things that I think are um, really problematic around how research is getting framed. But I don't think right now we have a lot of information that's generally available to teachers in terms of how do I read that? So when I do encounter something like this, how can I how can I read it in a way that is open to what insights are there, but also not sort of necessarily taking, you know, going beyond going beyond the headlines, assume that there's something else underneath there that's mm -hmm. also that that doesn't necessarily always apply in the same way in my particular classroom setting. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm working through some of the uh, ideas around research that I think can get confusing for people and trying to uh, unpack and organize some of those things. So this conversation has been really helpful for me and just thinking further about those ideas as well. So I really want to thank all of you for your dedication to the field and just for having these kinds of conversations because it's really enriching. Thank you, Mara. And thank you everyone for being here. Um, this has been great. And I'll be uh, publishing the audio uh, for everyone. Uh, so anyone who wasn't able to join us can be here. And again, uh, thank you. And uh, uh, best wishes on your on your on your work going forward, Maren. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Matt. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you so much. That was so helpful. Thank you.